Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and this episode focuses in on the Second World War. Specifically, how did the artists, curators, and archivists at places like the Louvre Museum in Paris protect some of the world's greatest masterpieces from the Nazis? As art historian and best-selling author Laura Morelli explains, the Nazis had a dedicated, sprawling, heavily funded department that was specifically given the job to steal and hoard precious art. They even had their own Nazi theft division. But there was one painting that they couldn't find, one that Hitler, the failed artist, desperately wanted. And despite a cat and mouse chase that lasted the entirety of the war, they never got their hands on it. And this was the Mona Lisa. Laura's retelling of this story is captivating, and she's got a new book out called The Stolen Lady, a novel of World War II and the Mona Lisa. Check it out, and remember, if you like what you hear, then take a second to pop us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy. Hi, Laura. Great to have you on the History Hit Warfare podcast. How are you doing today? Hello, James. I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. It's a thrill. Not a problem at all. It's not often that we get to have a best-selling art historian on the podcast, but when it comes to the Second World War history of masterpieces, both stolen and protected from the Nazis, well, you are the person to come to. So let's dive straight into this. Take us back to the beginning of the war. Let's say to 1939 or perhaps even further. When did museum staff at places like the Louvre in Paris start to prepare to well be involved in the war to be looted by invading forces whether that be the nazis or not when did they start to prepare for this well i think that the museums across europe were pretty savvy by the time 1938 39 rolled around you know art looting is nothing new certainly not new in the 20th century i mean works of art and buildings have been looted since ancient times you have only to look at Rome, for examples, and certainly in World War One, certainly even before that, during the Napoleonic campaigns, Europeans were quite 
familiar with what could happen to these treasures. Now, for World War II, as you may know, you have the unique circumstance that Adolf Hitler was himself an art student and an artist and a connoisseur of old master paintings, was super opinionated about the relative value of paintings and works of art. And certainly these old master paintings, like the works of Leonardo da Vinci, for example, were at the top of the Germans' list of things to bring back to Germany. So the staff of these museums across Europe began packaging up their treasures in 1938, 39. The Louvre was very quickly removing works of art from the paintings from their frames, rolling up huge canvases across the floor. And if you've ever been to the Louvre, you know, some of these paintings are absolutely massive. They were rolling up canvases when they could. They were packaging up works of art in wooden crates. The Mona Lisa had her own special crate that had acid-free paper and velvet lining, and it was a wooden crate with three red dots. The Louvre curators had this very complex system of designating relative value of works of art, and the Mona Lisa was the only one with three red dots indicating a work of the utmost value. Wow. This is a tremendous, monumental effort. Is this a, a policy that had been handed down from the French government at the time? Is this something that libraries and galleries and museums had been mandated to do? Or is this charismatic leaders of each individual place taking it upon themselves, taking on that mantle and moving forward as quickly as they can to get these things put to safety? You know, I think in reality, it's a combination of both. But it's interesting when you look back at the historical record to see that sometimes these official efforts were a little bit confused or not very coordinated. And it's amazing and really inspiring, I think, to read the individual contributions to this effort. And you really do find these stories of individuals putting the safety of these works of art ahead of their own safety. And um, particularly for the Louvre, there were many individuals who really went above and beyond the call of duty. For example, there was a woman who was a curator of Egyptian art. She was the only one with the correct paperwork that allowed her to go back and forth between the occupied sections of France and then in the parts of the country to the south where the Louvre had these secret hiding spots, these depots where they were holding thousands of works of art and hiding them from the Nazis. She went back and forth, driving her own car to bring works of art back and forth across this Vichy line. The director of the Louvre himself was an extremely charismatic man, Jacques Jojard. He was really an incredible leader in crisis under pressure. He managed to finesse his way through this very oppressive and complicated German system. He continued to placate and put off the Germans who kept demanding and asking him to return his works of art to Paris once the Germans came into the city and occupied it. He used every tool in a French diplomat's arsenal. He was extremely polite. He was very genteel. He was super well-dressed. He used all of these tools in his arsenal to 
say, oh yes, we're bringing them back. We just have a little delay. We have to get our paperwork straight. He continued to kind of delay and the return of the works long enough for his curatorial staff to get the paintings to safety and to take them further and further away from the Germans' hands. So there were so many stories of individual leadership during this crisis that fascinated me as I was putting together my research for my historical novel, The Stolen Lady. So tell us a little bit about how serious an offence this would be if someone was caught taking these portraits and putting them to safety. How serious was the Nazi policy to try and get these masterpieces? Was this something that was actually handed down by Hitler, the artist, the failed artist? Was this something that was a Nazi policy that everything had to be moved into Nazi hands? So you may be familiar, James, with the story of Hitler's art museum plans for Linz, Austria. He had plans for a gigantic museum that was to house every masterpiece in the world, which is kind of (laughs) staggering and mind-boggling. Now, even more staggering and mind-boggling than that was the amount of people that he put at the service of this mandate to collect these works of art from across Europe. I mean, this was not just a policy or wasn't really carried out by just a handful of people. I mean, the Germans really conscripted lots of art professionals. They went to the universities and pulled art historians like myself out of the classroom to get involved in this effort. They brought in journalists, art historians, artists, art curators, conservationists into this effort. And when you really look across the span of Europe during World War II, this art collecting, quote unquote, effort was truly staggering. I mean, we are talking about tens of thousands of works of art, masterpieces, altarpieces pulled out of churches, paintings pulled from the walls of museums, books and archives pulled out of universities and libraries across Europe. I mean, it was an absolutely massive effort. And there were people involved at every level from the lowliest curatorial assistant who was compiling inventories up to the very men who were reporting directly to Hitler. And I'm always amazed to look at these very high-ranking Nazi officers who spent so much of their time thinking about art (laughs) in the face of this staggering war. It's really amazing to realize how much focus was put on works of art during World War II. And, you know, the Nazis either stole or attempted to steal every known painting by Leonardo da Vinci. And in some cases, they succeeded. In some cases, luckily, they didn't. Well, tell us about those cases where they succeeded. How many of da Vinci's masterpieces were they able to get hold of? And I can assume there's some harrowing accounts of how they got hold of them. Yes. And, you know, Leonardo da Vinci was an extremely prolific person, but there are only about 16 surviving paintings by him. And probably the most dramatic of these stories is the story of the lady with the ermine, which is a beautiful portrait that was painted in 15th century Milan of a young woman with a white furry creature in her lap. If you Google lady with the ermine, you'll say, oh, yes, I recognize that 
that picture. It was taken from a private collection just as the Nazis stormed into Poland. They took it from a noble Polish family along with a portrait by Raphael, landscape by Rembrandt, and many other works of art. And this was really a direct, you know, they marched into this beautiful country home and took all of these works for themselves. And in other cases, works were successfully hidden. Leonardo da Vinci's portrait of Ginevra de Benci, which is the only of his paintings in the United States, was hidden in a wine cellar in Liechtenstein. The Mona Lisa, as I mentioned, was packaged up in the Louvre, and she moved to five different hiding places in the French countryside between 1939 and 1945. The Nazis were hot on the heels of the Mona Lisa. Um, There were many close calls where they were literally in the same building at the same time, and the Louvre curators were clever enough to keep the picture out of their hands. So it really was kind of a patchwork, but certainly in, for France at least, the Germans were very keen on understanding where all of these hidden depots were, and the Louvre was very good at keeping them just out of arm's reach. They kept moving, shifting, negotiating with private castle owners in the countryside to see what might be good hiding places. They divided up the Louvre's collection and put some pictures in one place and others in another. I can only imagine that keeping track of all of those inventories must have been quite a feat. It sounds like it was truly a battle on both sides. And I can't get over this idea that the Nazis recruited what I can only refer to as military art historians. This is a conscious effort to recruit people at all levels to do some of the most in-depth researching and documenting of where the most valuable pieces of art within every country invaded by the Nazis is how much it's worth and how you can get your grubby hands onto it. That is, truly is uh, something which you could only do in a total war situation, isn't it? Where you've got all of the state's might behind you and you're putting that sort of money into it. Do we know how many people were working within that Nazi framework? Because I know there was also a Nazi art theft division as well, wasn't there? Well, you know, we tend, I think, when we look at the history of war to see things in black and white. But one of the things that I think is interesting about this topic of art in war is that it's truly every shade of gray. And this is so true when you start talking about these art professionals who were involved in this effort on all sides. I mean, the Germans had this Kunstschutz division, which was, they called it an art protection division. Division. This was, you know, filled with art professionals who were experts, who knew what they were looking at. I mean, one of the highest ranking members of the Nazi effort of art looting was Kai Mulman. He was a very mild-mannered Austrian art historian who had, just before the war, written his dissertation about the Baroque fountains of Salzburg. I mean, it sounds like a very <laughs> benign kind of person, you know, and yet he ended up heading up this huge huge effort to loot works of art across Poland and the Netherlands and northern France and Belgium and was on trial at Nuremberg. But then beneath that level, you had many other levels of people who I think truly recognize the value and the importance of these works of art. Um, Right now, I'm researching the evacuation of the Uffizi galleries in Florence and the German Kunstschutz officials who were involved in Italy. You 
know, Italy certainly was every shade of gray because the fascists were involved. They were allies of the Nazis for a long time. And there were German professionals, art professionals working in Italy who had written books about Italian sculpture. They spoke Italian. They loved Italy. They cared very much about preserving these masterpieces by these Italian artists. And yet, at the same time, they were tasked with hiding them away from the Allies, perhaps putting them in danger. There was a group of works of art that were taken from these Tuscan high places and brought to the Austrian border, almost ended up in the salt mines at Alt Aussi and elsewhere in Austria and Germany. And so it was very much a mixed bag of loyalties when you look at the individual level. And so that for me as an art historian is one of the most fascinating aspects, I think, of this story of art looting during World War II specifically. Imagine a millennium that laid the foundations for the modern world as we know it today, when kingdoms were forged, languages shaped, cultures created. I'm Dr. Kat Jarman, and on Gone Medieval, my co-host Matt Lewis and I will tell you just why the so-called Dark Ages really weren't that dark after all. Subscribe to Gone Medieval by History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, there's also a political motive behind this, isn't there, Laura? Because if we look back right through history, but all the way up to the present day, we can see that when any invading force comes in, be it ISIS in Syria and Iraq, or through to rebels in Mali moving through to the libraries of Timbuktu, they don't only loot, but they destroy as well. Because art, sculptures, ancient manuscripts... 
They are the history, the story, the culture of a nation, a peoples, a society. And if you're an invading force, you might not want all of those aspects of that history to continue. They might as well go against some of your own beliefs. So with that in mind, did the Nazis destroy any of the artworks they got their hands on? Well, certainly there are a lot of stories leading up to World War II in the mid to the late 1930s, where certain works of art, even in Germany, were confiscated, were burned because they didn't conform to the Nazis' ideals of what art should be. You know, again, think about Hitler as this connoisseur of art. He was incredibly judgmental about works of art. You know, they had exhibitions in Berlin and other German cities of works of art that were desirable and others that were undesirable. They had very strict criteria about what kinds of works they thought were worthy of keeping and which ones were worthy of destroying. Think about also the fact that one of the mines at Alt Aussie in Austria was actually wired for bombing. So toward the end of the war, as Germans were being squeezed back into Austria and Germany, there was even a plan to press a button and blow up these mines that held thousands of works of art, documents, books, treasures from across Europe. And thankfully, that did not happen. But certainly, that had a political motive as well. So throughout history, works of art have served political purposes, whether they were intended as such to begin with or not. And certainly, World War II is no exception to that. Hitler's quite the art critic for a man whose works were described as cold, unfeeling and distinctly mediocre by a lot of art critics. But he had his eyes on one in particular, and we've mentioned it already. This is the Mona Lisa, right? So this was chased across not only France, but also, well, tell us the story. <laughs> what sort of efforts did the Nazis go to to get hold of this three-dot immeasurable, in terms of value, piece of art, the Mona Lisa? So the Mona Lisa, a lot of people don't realize that it was Leonardo da Vinci himself who actually brought this painting to France. It was not looted by Napoleon, as some people believe, or anything like that. Leonardo da Vinci, toward the end of his life, actually was called to France by the king, and the king was his patron for the last few years of his life. And so it's amazing to realize this, but Leonardo da Vinci, probably in his mid-60s, crossed the Alps from Italy into France with the Mona Lisa in his possession. I just think of him on, on muleback or something carrying this masterpiece, as well as others, across the Alps to France. And after the revolution, then the royal collection ended up in the Louvre. And so that's how the Mona Lisa actually ended up there. It was famously stolen in 1911 by an Italian man who thought he was doing his patriotic duty by returning the picture to Italy, perhaps not realizing that it was Leonardo himself who brought it there many centuries before that. But specifically for for World War II, the Louvre curators packed up the Mona Lisa in this crate along with more than 3,000 other works of art. They were loaded into trucks. The Louvre staff had to requisition all kinds of trucks across the city because they didn't have enough military vehicles. So the director of the Louvre, Jacques Jojar, was very resourceful in getting hold of lots of other trucks. 
they had a difficult time because at the time they left the Louvre with these works of art, it was the moment when the Parisians realized that the Nazis were almost on their doorstep and refugees were pouring out of Paris by the thousands. People were in cars, on foot, on bicycles, with carts, just with their belongings on their backs. And the Louvre staff was making their way out of the city with these trucks loaded down. Can you imagine with all of these pictures and Egyptian antiquities and giant sculptures and things that were packaged in these trucks? The first place they went was the Chateau of Chambord, which is in the Loire Valley. It's one of the beautiful French chateaus. It looks like a white wedding cake out in the middle of an open field. And this seemed to be the perfect place to hide these works of art. At first, it already belonged to the French government. It was outside the city, seemed safe. But it didn't take them long to realize that this was a big mistake. I mean, number one, they had problems of climate control. You know, it was a damp and cold castle. But the main problem they realized is that it was a very easy target from the air. And all you have to do is Google aerial photos of Chambord, and you will see that that was a very easy target for air warfare. And so they ended up packaging everything up again and heading south. And as I mentioned, they then broke up the collection and started sending things to these different chateaus. The curators were going around the countryside, knocking on people's doors saying, you know, can the Ministry of Culture rent your home for a little while until we figure out what we're going to do? And they started hiding these works of art in these other castles in the countryside. One of the places they went was a monastery called Loc Dieu, which is in the countryside outside of of Toulouse. There, too, they quickly realized they had made a mistake because this medieval abbey was built right on the ground in this very wet, swampy area. Now, meanwhile, the Germans were starting to figure out where all of these depots were. I mean, as soon as the Louvre curators left Chambord, the Germans were already there on the doorstep, and the director of the Louvre was standing at the front door of the castle waiting for them. Can you imagine being in that position of standing at the door and waiting for the Germans to come? And so certainly this was a problem. Number one, finding an appropriate place where these works of art were not going to be damaged, were not going to have a flood or something like that. And then on the other hand, they had these Germans bearing down on them. At one point, the curators opened the crate with the Mona Lisa and they discovered that there were these little wood boring pests in the velvet wrapping that could have eaten into the, the wooden panel. And so they had all kinds of challenges <laughs> not, not just the military challenges. Yeah, well, it was difficult enough for the British to conduct a hasty retreat led by people like Allenbrook to get away from the Nazis, let alone being a curator just trying to protect the Mona Lisa. How often did they have to move the Mona Lisa? And was someone with it at all times? So there are some really fascinating stories about this. They moved her about five different times over six years. So she might stay for anywhere from six months, six to 18 months in one place. But there's some fascinating firsthand accounts. One of the accounts that I read was a woman named Lucy Mazuric, who was an archivist at the Louvre. Her husband was one of the curators, André Chanson. And Lucy actually wrote a memoir about 
about their exodus out of Paris with these works of art. And it was a really fascinating firsthand research source for me. And it was interesting to hear about how the curators kind of fought over who was going to have the Mona Lisa in their bedroom that night, you know, or under their desk. You know, in other works as well, they had their favorites that they wanted nearby, near them all the time where they would know where they were. And there's another story about a curator who rode in the back of a sealed truck through the countryside with the Mona Lisa. They made this sort of cot, if you will, this kind of stretcher almost. If you imagine a stretcher in the back of an ambulance, it was something along those lines to keep the Mona Lisa there and prevent all this kind of rocking back and forth over this rough terrain. But the curator who stayed in the back of the truck with the Mona Lisa during this several hour journey, when they opened the back of the truck, they realized that he had almost suffocated in the truck. And so people really did put their lives at risk to save these works for us, for future generations. And I just find that incredible. It gives me anxiety just thinking about being trusted with the Mona Lisa and moving it across the country. It's kind of heart palpitation stuff, isn't it, Laura? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Now, I remember that in 2013, there was this big international news about an art hall being found of modernist works, around one and a half thousand pieces, including Picasso's, that have been looted by the Nazis. And of course, thousands were looted by the Nazis successfully. But these were recovered by the German police in 2013. They're saying it's up to like a billion dollars worth of art. Do you think that there's much more out there to be found? I absolutely do. Yes. And I think that we're going to just continue to see things, amazing discoveries like that come to light. The one I'm hoping for that I hope I'm going to see in my lifetime is this painting that is a portrait of an unknown man by the artist Raphael. And it was in the same Polish collection as Leonardo da Vinci's Lady with the Ermine. And it traveled, this beautiful portrait of a man traveled with the Lady with the Ermine as the Germans were squeezed back into Germany toward the end of the war. And Hans Frank, who was the German-appointed governor of uh, Nazi-occupied Poland, he wanted these pictures in his own possession. He wanted Da Vinci's Lady with the Ermine. He wanted Raphael's Portrait of a Man and a Landscape by Rembrandt. These were referred to as the Great Three, and he wanted them hanging in his own home. And in fact, they did hang in his home in Bavaria for a certain period of time. But somewhere along the way, Raphael's portrait of a man went missing, and it's never been found. I think that there may still be someone alive who knows where it is. I think up until recently, at least, there were some pretty good ideas about where it may have gone missing along the way to Germany. And I just hope that sometime soon it's going to turn up in someone's attic or behind a wall or who knows where. And That'll be an exciting day when that happens. But there are many other discoveries yet to come, I'm sure of it. Well, there you go. There's a call to all our listeners. Keep your eyes open. Look out for Raphael's portrait of a man. That would be a remarkable find. Check your attic, yes. (laughs) Check your attic, check under your floorboards, everything. I think that is the key takeaway from this episode. Well, thank you so much, Laura, for taking us through this cat and mouse game of trying to just keep some of the world's most precious paintings and pieces of art safe from the Nazis. Tell us, where can people read more about this story? 
The best place to find me is at lauramorelli.com. You can find my uh, my nonfiction books, my historical novels, and I have some online art history courses there as well. And thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Not a problem at all. And just to be clear, the name of the book is The Stolen Lady, a novel of World War II and the Mona Lisa. Laura, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the History Hit Warfare podcast. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, James. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.